Thank you, David and Vicky and Dave and Becky, for just wonderful opening and just drawing our attention to to the Lord, to the one who gave himself for us. As David mentioned, uh, this morning I'll be introducing a new series, and we'll be looking at various characters in the Bible that we don't often focus on. Uh, some of the ones that we're going to be studying over the next couple months include the Apostles John, Luke, looking at John the Baptist, Anna and Simeon, the woman at the well, among others. The overall purpose of this series, as mentioned, was to learn from the Holy Spirit why these people were singled out in the Bible, why they're mentioned. What can we learn from their interactions with the Lord and what can we see and take from their lives and apply it to our own? Let's just open with a word of prayer, shall we? Our Heavenly Father, we just pause and thank you for your goodness. We thank you that we can gather here because of your incredible love for us, the love that sent Jesus to the cross for us. And we thank you, Father, for your word that we can open and look into this morning. I just pray that you would guide my words, that you would just open our hearts to what you would have us learn, each of us. Father, we thank you for your spirit and just pray again for your guidance in opening your word. We just thank you for everything. Thank you for Jesus, for your word, for your spirit. In Jesus' name we ask. And thank you. Amen. Some of the key questions, and this is as much for me and the this slide as much for me and the other speakers to come, that we're going to be looking at this series. What is the context or the setting for the different stories for these characters? How did God interact with this person to attract him or her into a deeper relationship with himself? What principles did these people apply in their lives? What was their understanding about Jesus? And of course, we want to do this so that we can learn from their experiences things that would help us deepen our relationships with the Lord. We want to learn from their experiences what we can do or learn that would encourage us to serve and to follow more. And the lessons that these people teach us, they might be positive, they could be negative, however it is, uh, it's a lesson for us and it's an application for us. So as David mentioned this morning, I'm going to be looking at Nicodemus and uh, I'll be looking to address some of those points through a short study on him. In a nutshell, I trust that you'll see that Nicodemus believed in God. He was a Pharisee, as was mentioned, and he sought to live his life diligently for God. He studied extensively and applied what he learned. Nicodemus heard about and he sought out Jesus. Later on, he spoke about him openly amongst his peers. Following the crucifixion, he took a significant risk and he paid a significant amount of money in preparing Jesus' body for burial. And as was alluded to, um, my opinion, and I think others would share this, I think that he became a believer and he put his trust in Jesus. So, who was Nicodemus? The Bible, again, the Bible tells us that he was a Pharisee. 
And it's likely that he also would have been part of the Sanhedrin. So the Sanhedrin was this local council or court of justice. And it's thought to go back to the time when Moses, when the people were complaining to Moses about the manna. And all they're getting is manna. And they're fed up and they're complaining to Moses. And Moses turns to God and says, I can't take this anymore. So the Lord tells Moses to get 70 elders to help him look after the people. And you see that in Numbers 11, 16 to 17 that you see here. The Lord tells him to get 70 of the people, bring them to the tent, and he's going to come down and talk to them, and he's going to take some of the spirit that he's put on Moses and give it to the elders. So that's sometimes thought to be the genesis of the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin was, sorry, uh, some of the references that you find would suggest that it's continued through time. Uh, for example, in Second Chronicles, we know that Jehoshaphat brought the council together. The Talmud knows that King Saul and Jonathan were leaders of it. Following the return of the exiles under Ezra, he realized there's this incredible spiritual vacuum, and he pulled the council together again. So the Sanhedrin was the supreme legal and religious authority. The members addressed administrative issues and civil matters, and they played the role of what we could think of as our Supreme Court. And there's references in Proverbs as an example that talk about taking something to be for a decision or somebody's gone because they're sitting at the council. The Sanhedrin was thought to have initially met in the corner of the temple complex, and not inside the temple proper because there are references to them meeting in the hall of the hewn stone. Or sorry, in the hewn stone so they couldn't be in the temple proper because some of the stones in there couldn't be cut. Later on, they met outside the temple complex, sometimes at the home of the high priest. In Jesus' time, the Sanhedrin had a fair degree of latitude how it operated. In addition to overseeing things like the religious and the civil matters, they had a fair bit of power. For example, they had the power to have people arrested and brought before them. At the time of Jesus, Caiaphas was a high priest. And they, at the time of Jesus, the Sanhedrin probably met outside the temple complex. And as a high priest, Caiaphas would have been probably the leader of the Sanhedrin at the time. The Sanhedrin was abolished when Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD, and it continued in various forms, probably until around 425. And some would suggest that it's continued beyond there. And you can find references where people have tried to restart the Sanhedrin in various forms over the centuries. In a small community, less than 120 households, there are probably about 24 people in the Sanhedrin. Generally, and here in Jerusalem, there would have been 71. So remember the Genesis being Moses and then later Joshua with 70 elders. So composition would have included high priests, so the acting high priest and members of privileged families who can become a high priest. They would have had elders, so heads of the different tribal families would have been, could have been on that group. They would have had scribes, uh, sometimes thought of as lawyers, experts in the law. They would have had Pharisees and Sadducees. The Pharisees 
were kind of like sages. They were wise. Uh, they were also referred to as people who separate themselves. The Pharisees were considered to be people of great learning and knowledge, people who strictly followed the traditional teachings, especially as they pertained to ritual purity and tithes. They separated themselves as much as possible from those who didn't share their strict interpretation of God's commands for holy living. So some of the things that we learn about Nicodemus, we can infer because he was a Pharisee. So in general, the Pharisees accepted the commands of the rabbis preserved through the oral traditions. So not only did they follow the Torah, but more, just as much so, if not more so, they followed the commands that were in the oral traditions. And they accepted those as inspired by God and authoritative. They noted that there's free will. Each of us has free will. However, God is sovereign. They believed in a hierarchy of angels and demons. They also believed in an afterlife and that there's going to be rewards and retribution at that time. They believed in the resurrection of the dead. And they emphasized teachings that were related more to ethical behavior than so theological issues. The Sadducees believed almost the opposite. And over the years, there was much dissension between these two groups. And there were power struggles for control of the Sanhedrin. Now, the high priests were usually Sadducees. There are numerous references to the Pharisees looking into Jesus' actions and claims in John's Gospel and elsewhere. While some were clearly opposed to Jesus and to his followers, others were open to what they saw and they heard. And they tried to get the leadership to look more closely at Jesus. can look again. Now that we have some context, we'll look at the, the first of three passages where we find Nicodemus in the Bible. And to help set the stage, we note that early in the Gospel, we read people were coming to Jesus because of the signs he was doing. And we aren't sure whether what Nicodemus witnessed those himself or just heard about them. So let's look at that few verses from John 3 again. <clears throat> Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to know Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one could do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness of what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? 
So we see here that Nicodemus came under the cover of darkness. It's risky for him to be seen going out and having a chat with Jesus. He realizes Jesus is a special person. And he notes that the only way Jesus can do what he does is if God is with him. He's coming to, if he hasn't already, a crossroads or decision point. Who is this Jesus? And what am I going to do about him? Now Nicodemus, as we mentioned, was well versed in the teachings and the oral traditions. Yet he knows that he's the student in this conversation with Jesus and refers to Jesus as rabbi or teacher. And it's interesting because Jesus, as far as we know, didn't have any formal teaching or sorry, formal training. And the cultural norm in those days would have been for the person of lower status or learning to first address the person of upper status and then the person of upper status would kind of downplay who they are or what they know and then the real conversation starts. So Jesus notes that Nicodemus is a teacher himself and yet he doesn't understand what he's hearing. When you look at what Jesus said to him, it's kind of interesting. Hmm. Yeah, you really got to give this one some thought. And in those days, it was common for people to speak in riddles or in ways that the only people who were going to figure it out were the ones who diligently studied and really want to find the answer. And they would find the answer. Nicodemus likely realized that you know, the knowledge of things Jesus is talking about require wisdom and understanding that can only come from above or come from heaven. In Proverbs 2, we read about the value of seeking wisdom, the fact that it comes from the Lord and the rewards of having it. Just reading a bit from Proverbs, we'll start actually uh, at verse 4. If you seek it like silver and search, it, search for it as hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. Jesus notes that to see the kingdom of heaven, people must be born again. Heaven was a surrogate title for God, so the Jewish sources sometimes use the word above in the same way. So in other words, to see the kingdom of God, one must be born from God. Nicodemus suggests, well, this is a physical birth, is it? And then Jesus clarifies it. And it is worth noting that some Jewish teachers allowed Gentiles to be reborn or converted to Judaism, which included immersion in water. It was accepted that living things produce things that are like them or have the same characteristics. So in other words, if somebody is truly born of the Spirit or of God, God's character will be reflected in their lives. This is important as Jesus notes, the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. In Ezekiel 36, I've got 24 to 27, uh, looking at 25 to 27, the context here is God's looking forward to the time when he restores people to the land he promised. If you just look at what we've got bold and highlighted, it says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. I will give you a new heart. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes 
Be careful to obey my rules. The next time we see Nicodemus in the Bible, he's suggesting Pharisees listen to what Jesus has to say. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Sound familiar? Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those he believes in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. The people argued about who Jesus was, and some asked, picking up in verse 42, Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke to us like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and, without lear- and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Only a minority of the population in those days had a formal education as we would know it. Many of the elites looked down on the masses, particularly those who were not educated in the law. The first reaction then is to scoff at the notion anyone be so stupid to believe in Jesus because they, they, those learned leaders, do not. I appreciate the the version that Dave Dave put up. They mocked. Galilee was looked down as was looked down upon as a hick town, and no self-respecting prophet would come from Galilee. I wonder if they were just so opposed to Jesus that they just tossed this out without giving some thought, or if they actually looked to see if that was true. Nicodemus notes their procedural rules require they hear somebody out before condemning them, and we see that in Deuteronomy 1:16. Their response, again, has that scoffing or that mocking tone. Are you from Galilee too? Who let you in? Like, Are you really just an uneducated hick like the rest of these guys? Or are you really a Pharisee that knows this stuff? The message is clear. Anyone who believes in Jesus, anyone who believes a prophet would come on a Galilee is not worth their time, at least some of them. Now, we don't know for certain that Nicodemus raised this point in order to defend Jesus right now, or if he really wanted to give Jesus the opportunity to speak so people can hear about who he really was and what he had to say. I suggest that it was probably a mix of the latter two reasons. Now, this was pretty risky, though. The synagogue was central to life for the Jewish people. Upsetting the Sanhedrin could have some pretty serious consequences, not the least of which could, included, could have included being kicked out of that council, out of the synagogue, and being ostracized from, from the rest of the community. We know, however, these specific Pharisees got it wrong. 
from 2 Kings 14 and 25, we see that Jonah was the son of Amittai the prophet, who was from Gath-Hefer, which happened to be in Galilee. Hmm. The third time we see Nicodemus, we find Nicodemus referenced in the Bible is after Jesus is crucified. From John 19. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as was the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Roman crucifixion was meant to humiliate and to make an example of those who were executed in this fashion. The bodies were left, often left hanging so that the vultures and the dogs could get them. And there were some allowances for Jewish people to get the bodies, but even them, and, and would have been the family members, even then, the bodies were usually dumped in a common grave for the public criminals first, and then they can retrieve the bodies. In this instance, we learn that Joseph of Arimathea requested the body of Jesus. And this would have been a huge risk for an elite citizen of his stat- status. If this wasn't sanctioned by the Sanhedrin, and he went, because it could, acu- it could associate him with Jesus and his alleged treason, the reason that they got him crucified in the first place. And there were some bad apples in leadership, not all of them, but there were some. And it could, could have provided them the opportunity to have gone after Joseph to seek to ha- actually have him ex- executed and to confiscate his property. Nicodemus would have been guilty by association as well. Generally, uh, the Pharisees weren't necessarily in that 1%. They weren't the really rich ones. Uh, in this case, we see that uh, Nicodemus did have some wealth. The amount of spices he brought give us an indication of that. By way of comparison, the teacher Gamaliel was thought to have been wrapped in about 60 to 70 pounds of spices. And the value of the spices here, of uh, 75 the King James refers to 100 pounds of spices, was pretty significant. If you remember a little while back, when Jesus was at her house, Mary took a flask of pure nard, a fragrance, and she poured it on Jesus' feet. And Judas complained because he said, you know, that could have been given to the poor. That's worth a year's wages. The value of the spices here was worth significantly more than that. So learning from Nicodemus, let's summarize some of the practices or traits that we saw. As a Pharisee, we know he believed in God. We know that he studied and sought to live out the instructions God provided. When he first heard about Jesus, maybe even saw a miracle or heard him speaking firsthand, he realized Jesus was a very special person, maybe even the Messiah that the scriptures speak about. Given his position in society, he wasn't free to have open conversations with Jesus, so he approached him when it was dark. Despite his own knowledge, 
He knew that there is more to learn and willing to be the student. I think he showed humility in his conversation with Jesus. In Jesus' day again, the student would follow the teacher, learning from them, being with them all the time, watching every aspect of their lives. Lesson for us, that should be our first priority, staying close to the Lord. I would suggest that most, if not all, people find the more they study something, the more they realize there's more to learn. Ask somebody with a PhD if they know it all, if they figured out it all. And by the way, if they say yes, put them with another PhD and see if they agree on everything. I would suggest this is particularly true of our knowledge of God's Word. It starts with reading the Bible, seeking God's Spirit to help us understand it. And then I'd suggest that Nicodemus realized he knew he needed God's wisdom to help him understand what Jesus was telling him when he said he had to be born again. How many people here have read a book or watched a movie more than once? Five times? Ten? More? Do you get to the point where you know the words and you can say the words in advance? Do you still, even when you do that, every time you watch it or read it, find something new? Something that you may want to consider doing is reading different translations of the Bible and seeing how the slight variations in the word help understand what God's trying to tell you. Like Nicodemus, we need to seek to learn more about Jesus and about God's will and his leading for our lives. We need that wisdom from above, the Spirit's guiding as we open his word. One passage Nicodemus and others would have recited on a daily basis comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6. and It's known as the Shema. And it's important to note that God provides the rationale for this. It's so that the people would fear the Lord and follow his commands so that they'll have an abundant life. It wasn't just do this. Here's what happens when you do it. Here's the reason I want you to do it. So we won't read the whole passage. Uh, perhaps we'll just... This is the, the expl- explanation part. We'll skip over to, to this part. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your might. And it goes on a few more verses. Put them on your heart. Teach them. Talk about them. Wear them. So that it's always there. You're always aware of it. Jesus noted the most, in, most important commandment when he was asked and said, the most important one answered Jesus is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is like this, love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. You may have noticed when I was reading from chapter 3 in John's Gospel, I stopped before reading what's probably the most well-known verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Isn't that amazing? Believing is far more than just acknowledging in here that God exists. Jesus gave his life to pay the price for our sin, for our shortcomings. 
Believing is acknowledging that Jesus died for you and for me. It's a personal thing because we can find or earn or work our way to God on ourselves. The message is to let him be your savior and let him be the Lord, your Lord, the one who leads your life. Believing is making it real. It's taking that knowledge and putting it into action through faith. It's loving God with all of the heart, the mind, soul, and strength. And again, while the Bible doesn't categorically tell us Nicodemus became one of Jesus' disciples, I think he did. And we see evidence of this when he challenged the others to let Jesus speak. When he went and helped prepare the body, Jesus' body for burial, he really put his money where his mouth is. And he took a huge risk in doing that. Would he have done that if he thought this was a big farce? I don't think so. And it's my prayer that nobody leaves here today without truly examining their commitment to Jesus. If anyone here has never reached that point of commitment, that point of belief where you gave control to God and accepted him as your Savior, as your Lord, I'd encourage you to do so today. And if you're not sure what that means, I'd love to talk to you more about it. Now, Nicodemus would have been well-versed in the Torah, where God set the standards for righteousness and provided the people with teaching or instruction for living out those standards. It's often translated law. And the problem was that the teachings or instructions often became more a form of rules and regulations or religion. And the trap was that it became legalism. So the Torah is made up of the first five books of what we often refer to as the Pentateuch. Lesson for us is that if we're not careful, we too can fall into that trap where we focus more on the rules and regulations and miss the spirit or the intent of why God put them there in the first place. Not saying that there are things that we really shouldn't avoid because there are and things that we really should do because there are as long as we're doing it for the right reasons. And I do realize that this can be a fine line at the best of times. The problem is that if all we're doing is following a rule book, what we're doing is trying to earn our way to God, to merit his favor. And that's religion. God wants from us a relationship where we converse with him, where he guides us, where he leads us, where our decisions are made with the purpose of honoring him. When Nicodemus suggested that the Sanhedrin let Jesus speak, he was really, again, going out on a limb doing that, and he was criticized for doing that. And there's times when we're free to speak more openly of God. There's other times when uh, how we present the gospel has to be done in a quieter way or a different way. However, we all have a responsibility to share that good news even though we might approach it in different ways. In Romans 10:17, Paul's making reference to the prophet Isaiah when he talks about belief and notes that faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. When Nicodemus and Joseph prepared Jesus' body for burial, it not only showed great courage, but it was an act of respect. It was an act of love. And it was an act of worship. Worship is our response to God's love. 
We do that when we live all aspects of our lives in a way that honors him. And a couple of verses recently from our study in Colossians that helped set the bar for us. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. I'd ask our uh, opening team to come back up and we'll close in song and I'll ask uh, David if he'll close in prayer. And as they're doing that, so my closing instructions, your homework, follow Jesus. Keep pressing onward. Keep going forward and growing in your love for the Lord and honoring him. Lord, we thank you for the life of Nicodemus, that he was willing to examine what he thought and what he believed and re-examine it in light of what Jesus was saying and doing. We pray that we too might examine what we do and what we think through the light of uh, Jesus' teachings. And we pray that as we do so, we might choose to follow him, that we might commit ourselves to a course of action that would trust, that would show our trust in him and our decision would lead to others to come and follow with us. In Jesus' name, amen.